Hey, Pete. Hey, Mia. What's up? We're about to record an episode of Share the Load. Yes, we are. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Share the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the burden of daily life, how do our evolving views on identity and work determine how we share responsibility? I'm the host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in LA. And she's awesome. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Can I tell you about the Patreon tiers? Why, yes, you can. Let's give our listeners a great ad experience. (laughs) All right, I'll try. The first tier is $5 a month, which gets you discount codes and early access to my online classes. For 20 bucks a month, you get the same uh, discount codes and early access, plus a month of shout outs to your own product or show or offering, one free intro class, and share the load merch, which is TBD, uh, and I haven't, I haven't decided what it is yet, but it's coming soon. I'm trying to convince her to do cool t-shirts. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> the tiers get better from there. There's a $10 tier, a $50 tier, and a $100 tier. And right now, if you become a subscriber, you'll be helping me get a better microphone, which I hear is really important. It's real good. It's real good <laughs> for a podcast. Yeah, that's, that's what I hear. <laughs> well, all that's super cool. And if I didn't want to be a subscriber, which I am, uh, how else could one support the show? You can write a review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, which really helps direct other people to the show. It improves SEO, from what I understand. Um, You can also share about it on social media or share it directly with friends who you think would enjoy it. Yes, please share. (laughs) And we thank you for it. So I think we should start the show. All right, sounds good. I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today, I'm talking to Adrian Makura. As a longtime mentor and supporter of diversity in the industry, Adrian has spent her career collaborating with brands to communicate their message while also helping young women creatives tell their stories in film. She's a passionate advocate for the arts, teaching media literacy programs and founding women's organizations while bringing a singular focus to her work with a range of entertainment, film and production companies. As executive producer and managing director at creative collective Unicorns and Unicorns, Makura continues to be a trailblazer, marrying content's impactful strength with her desire to inspire social change. Hi, Adrian. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. All right. Uh, this morning, how about you? Same. Good. Good. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about um, how labor and responsibility fits into your life um, and how you sort of discovered that for yourself in in your childhood um, and then move into what that means to you now. Um, so to start, do you have um, formative memories that come to mind from your childhood where you began to kind of piece together that there was labor required to kind of make the world turn, run a house, um, you know, keep a family going and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I have, um, you know, in terms of labor, like I think, you know, sort of division of gender identity is sort of very, you know, very much tied into that. And I, and I definitely remember, you know, female kitchen, male, outside and and was sort of supported later in life when I was doing more media literacy, you know, sort of looking at those statistics about, you know, how we sell toys to kids 
and what those commercials look like, you know, boys get stuff outside, girls get stuff inside and in the kitchen. Um, but yeah, I have some pretty formative memories. Like I remember, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, like it was my job to clean the kitty litter because that's what girls, you know, it's like, you know, and it, it's like, I couldn't smell it. Like, I mean, that's a very like benign example, but, um, you know, certainly, you know, like cooking dinner was something that was, um, sort of on the plate of, you know, my mother and my stepmother. But then when uh, my father started cooking, it was a gourmet experience. You know, it was like, mm. um, it was, it was, it was a different tone. You know, it was like a project that was happening and he was going to be a chef, you know, it was just in, as opposed to, you know, for, for women, I think it's, you know, mother's legacy of putting dinner on the table and, um, you know, some of, some of those more obvious roles. And then I also, you know, I grew up in a really tumultuous, you know, my early years environment. And so I saw a lot of, um, you know, it was, there was some abuse evolved in my early childhood. And so I was really like sort of imprinted with this idea that, um, you know, women were objects to be used. So, I don't know how much we want to get into that, but you know, it was definitely a part of my formative years in terms of how I saw myself um, and what you know, sort of the the course that was laid out ahead of me in terms of what I had to unpack. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you're like the kind of um, the labor that was seen as kind of like the mundane, you know, everyone has to eat kind of thing, like when a woman was mm -hmm. doing it was mundane and when your mm -hmm. father was doing it was like elevated yeah. to this sort of higher, you know, artful kind right. of thing. Um, I guess I have it two would take hours. Right. Like, <laughs> it's like a huge production. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder um, about what you were talking about after that, when you're talking about like women understanding yourself kind of as an object for other people. Um, how did you begin to unlearn that for yourself, both consciously and unconsciously? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, therapy started at seven. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a very um, useful tool. I, you know, I did a lot of work, even, you know, starting really early and sort of understanding um, that I am a powerful human and that uh, I have you know, I, I'm, I went through a lot of hard times growing up, but I also had a lot of love. Um, and that's, that was super important. And, um, you know, I had a lot of encouragement, you know, it was interesting because when I started living with my dad again, uh, and my stepmom at the time, it was like, uh, you know, he, he taught me how to work on a car, uh, and I, and I feel like he taught me how to work on a car because he didn't want me to be like the other women mm -hmm. that uh, don't know anything about cars. Less about me knowing how to work on a car. It, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting because, you know, because then I couldn't stay out past 11 because people would think I was a slut. Mm -hmm. So this sort of dichotomy of um, messaging, you know, from, from my from my dad, but you know, how I, I mean, I really don't know, honestly, how it happened. You know, I, 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 I knew when I was five years old that like, 
I had this sort of Taurus, like, don't tell me what to do, Mm -hmm. you know, like sort of part of my core personality. And so I just didn't accept it. Um, You know, as an extension of that, it's taken me a long time to recognize that I carry this false bravado around um, Mm -hmm. as sort of like a, a, as a part of my armor to protect me from any, anybody else who's going to tell me I'm not good enough. Um, And that, that leaks into everything. Um, and it's still, you know, I'm what, 43 and it's still relevant. Yeah. I'm what you're making me think of is this, this kind of idea that like, um, you know, you're not like the other girls makes you cool or, or more desirable to the boys, right? right? Like that you're like cool enough to hang with the boys. Totally. Um, and I think that there's like, that's something that I kind of I'm still parsing out with my with my own yeah. experience of my gender, like how much of wanting to be a boy when I was a kid was because it was being expressed to me as something that was cooler than what I was. Absolutely. And how much of it is kind of like in my own nature, you know, maybe like that there's some gender fluidity. Absolutely. And I I don't want to have like my internal experience be determined by this reactionary thing to what was being taught to me by society. I want to be able to tap into like what is just innate in me, but is there any way to do that? You know, is there any way to like parse out where, where it's nature and where it's nurture? And is that even kind of an endeavor that's like worth doing if, if my experience today is what it is today? Yeah. Well, and it's also like, how do you, how do you embrace, um, people's own sense of identity and, and honor the voice and the path they want to live without shunning it. And I I mean, I say that like, or dismissing it, like as you know, just, I don't know if you've been watching that show or watch that show, Mrs. America. I Um, haven't. My parents have been watching it. So good. Like it's, it's really interesting um, for a lot of different reasons, but you know, it's like, like you're saying, like I was five years old playing with like my favorite toys were these little matchbox matchbox cars and I had a mat and, you know, like I drove them around and, you know, parked them and backed up and, you know, and I loved it. And um, I remember it was such a pivotal moment. Like this other little girl came over to play and she just sat there Mm. watching me play. And I was like, oh, right. Girls don't play with cars. Like it was this, you know, like re- realization that, I, oh, I need to find something else that girls like. And, you know, and that, like, I, I still love cars. Um, <laughs> and it carried through even into high school. You know, I was an athlete. I was a good student. You know, I stood up. I was very vocal. I was known for being, um, you know, about social justice even then. And, uh, and, and still, when I spoke on women's issues, it wasn't for me, you know, it was for the, the women who, you know, it was just, it was an, it was interesting, you know, that like somehow I was able to separate myself because that sort of association or thinking that I was a part of that club made me feel um, like I had a ceiling. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I'm interested in this idea that you're talking about of like when you're, when your father engaged in like typically, you know, stereotypically like women's work, that it kind of became this elevated thing. Cause that, that's something that I am trying to actually incorporate into my life because 
Mm-hmm. I want to kind of elevate the mundane and maybe mm-hmm. sometimes ritualize it in a certain sense and like find the pleasure in stuff that I otherwise mm-hmm. um, have found tedious or kind of, um, you know, like a, like a chore. Like I, I have to eat three times a day, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm trying to kind of look at it more as like, I get to eat right. three times a day. And how do I make this a creative and nourishing, you know, spiritually nourishing experience, not just like food, physically nourishing. Um, and I wonder if that's something that, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about it as like a, a gendered phenomenon, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if you've been able to kind of incorporate that in a, in a positive way into your life. Uh, sure. Um, well, that's an, that's an interesting question, you know, like turning sort of obligatory tasks of sort of assigned to gender into something. Um, I don't know. Yeah. With like a higher yeah, um, purpose or, or yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, off the top of my head like that, you know, I actually, I, I do love to cook. Um, there are, yeah, I mean, this isn't quite what you're asking, but you know, when, when, um, you know, my ex-husband and I decided to have kids, like part of that plan was for me to take a year off. I wanted to take a year off. And so we figured that out. And um, in that year, I realized that being a stay-at-home mom was not for me. Mm. Um, And so the flip side of that was, you know, I had, um, I, I, I have realized that, I really like to work um, and um, and then had to separate the obligation of child rearing as a stay at home mom. Um, I've had to welcome that like support systems into my life to help with that part that I don't actually feel connected to. Mm. Um, and that's, that might sound a little weird. Like I, you know, I just, um, huh. it's a different kind of work that isn't Absolutely. like maybe spiritually nourishing. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, that it's, you know, it's, it's not spoken about enough, you know, yeah. like, there's, I mean, also, you know, I had identical twin boys and, and, you know, three years in they were diagnosed with autism. So there's a lot of layers in there, you know, like <laughs> I don't I actually don't have the skill set really to intuitively understand, um, that without it being my primary focus. And Mm. um, anyway, I'm not sure if I answered your question really, but um, you know, I, I, I I try to enjoy what I do, you know, and that's been part of the journey. So, you know, in terms of, you know, these sort of binary lines, um, you know, I've worked hard to sort of blur them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, you're, you're just making me think of like, I've had this conversation with my mom that, she she had me and i believe she stayed home for for a while and then she had my sister and went back to work much more quickly and i think similar to you she was kind of she i mean the way that she's explained it is like even if i go back to work and make enough money to hire a babysitter and like break even i would rather do that than um than uh like be a stay-at-home mom and that's not at all to uh 
you know, like that, that's noble work if people choose to do it. And, and I, I don't think that she's at all, um, you know, judgmental of people who do choose to do it. It just, she understood that that was like, that was not for her. Yeah. Um, and that she needed kind of a different kind of work and it wasn't for the, the monetary satisfaction. She was happy to break even. She just knew that she needed to be kind of contributing, um, like outside of the home in a, yeah. in a different way. Well, this is where the binary line gets us in trouble, right? Because to be perfectly frank, you know, Michael, my ex-husband is way more suited and loves to be at home with the boys and does all kinds of projects. And I mean, even now during quarantine, like, yeah, they're doing videos and, you know, it's like he loves it. And, um, and, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, he, doesn't know how to, you know, didn't, doesn't know how to, I don't know now, but like, you know, like cooking was not his thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, being able to look at sort of the tasks that are presented and how to partition, you know, separate them yes. in a way that, that's, that reaches beyond, you know, these binary assignments. Like I think it's, it's something we need to do more and I'm really happy to see more of that happening. You know? It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, I am too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's limiting, you know, and it's, it doesn't, it doesn't show, it doesn't break these, these sort of assignments, you know, gendered assignments down in terms of our identity. Like, right. Right. Yeah. And also stays at home. That should be a paid position. Like that, like that, I mean, that's our future generation, you know, and right. We should value family more. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. I know. I know. No, I mean, I completely agree. I think it, I think, because it's not a paid position, we devalue it as a society in our minds. And there's like, there's things that I remember from, from growing up feeling like, um, my, my mom's work wasn't valued as much. Even, even her paid work wasn't valued as much because she wasn't making as much money as my dad. And that of course is because of the way that we've set up, you know, that women, white women make 70% of what white men make. And so there was kind of this, I don't know if it was, I don't, I'm sure it wasn't conscious. There was this kind of unspoken thing that like my mom makes less money. So she like does more of the child rearing of the cooking of the home of keeping the home going. Mm -hmm. Um, and the work is just not valued as much. My dad also had a, has it and still has a job where he's basically on call all the time. He's a talent manager. Whereas like my mom went into work, you know, was Mm -hmm. at work and then occasionally would bring work home, but could basically like be present when she Mm -hmm. was here. Whereas like my dad is always, he's always working and he's always not working, you know, there's like no separation. And so that was kind of given this hierarchically higher place in terms of like who does what in my family. Um, all right. I mean, we could, we could go down that (laughs) forever. Um, but I am, I, you know, this is the first podcast that I've, this is the first episode that I've recorded, um, since George Floyd was murdered. Um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the world has changed so drastically. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of people, uh, very suddenly waking up to what a whole lot of other people have already been working on and, um, aware of and trying to convince other people that, you know, like racism still exists to be quite frank. Like that's where a lot of people are kind of just now waking up. Um, 
And so what I've been thinking a lot about um, that I want to put to you is like, what is my role in in the revolution? So where am I going to be the most effective and the most of service? And then how to do that in a very consensual way? Yeah. Um, I like just before we started read something about um, this, like the non-consensual help that has yeah. been being given to black people by white people and non-black people um, with this kind of like assumption that all help is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I've been mulling this over a lot, you know, what, what is my role? And I've more or less come to the conclusion that my role is like as a consent educator um and how that plays in but i wanted to kind of put the question to you how you're kind of um processing this through your own lenses and considering how you can make a contribution perhaps make the biggest contribution that feels the most kind of aligned with your like personal mission um yeah i mean this is, uh, and I'm, and I actually am not, you know, um, it's a big question, you know, yeah, I, yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, my whole sort of jam since the beginning has been about social justice and, you know, and whatever that looks like, um, for, uh, different people. Um, I feel like these sort of paths though they might be, um, distinct they are you know intersectional is the word right like Mm -hmm. um i'm a woman i'm a white woman my experience is different than a black woman um a black lesbian you know like there's it just it it's it goes on so so my contribution is um i mean i really need to listen you know i think uh it's actually, I'm thinking about it personally a lot right now. Like, how do I, you know, this is an interesting thing that you bring up in terms of consent, you know, like, and, and pushing against this idea of the white savior. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, we started unicorns uh, in 2018. And this was like, you know, like, ev- since college, um, you know, I mean, my senior project in college was uh, to create a screening and lecture series for uh marginalized voices is what I was saying then because mm-hmm. you know the conversations that were happening in the department in Santa Fe at the, at the College of Santa Fe weren't didn't feel very uh well-rounded mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh you know it felt important to me to sort of create a space where those conversations could be had and invite filmmakers to talk about their experience and so you know since then um it's been my dream to uh find a place where I could merge um, my social justice drives and, uh, and the work that I do in a way that doesn't, you know, that I can actually make a living too. Like there's this other part that's like nonprofit sector is like, God. Um, yeah. Well, like figuring out how to pay yourself for your own labor. I just had a conversation with, um, one of my previous guests, camera, who's become a friend. And, and I was like, let's donate all of the like proceeds of this class to, you know, some organization or, or your residency program. And camera was like, um, how that's great. But like, how do we compensate ourselves for our labor? And I was like, Oh my God, 
Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, I, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm, you know, still working on like even valuing my yeah. own time and effort and energy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do want to just back up for a second. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like well-rounded was a euphemism and I would like to get into what it was a euphemism for. Yeah. Well, I mean the, you know, the thing that sort of stopped me in my tracks was listening to these um, white dudes talk about the script they were writing um, that was about a um, girl that broke up with her boyfriend and then to get back at him, she um, like had sex with 50 guys. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, like what? What is happening? Mm. And then there was like, you know, the conversation, I mean, we lit, you know, Santa Fe was a, you know, it's it's a complex intersection of like, I mean, it's got a lot of history and a lot of racial tension there. And um, it just was like, oh, that's not, no, that's not the kind of thing that, you know, that was like the peak, the tip of the iceberg, Mm. Mm -hmm. what the conversations were. And so we, so I did that screening lecture series and then uh, also taught a feminist, co-taught when I graduated at feminist film theory course, which was super interesting, um, with some really incredible mentors uh, there at the College of Santa Fe. But that, like, it was just like, nobody's really talking about responsibility in what we put out into the world, you know? like Yeah, so that's a great path to go down, like responsibility in storytelling. Yeah. Because um, I think that there's, there's two ways that I see that, and I, really like to hear, you know, you're, you're much more of an expert in storytelling than I am at this point in my life, but there's kind of two ways that I see responsibility in storytelling. There's both the responsibility to, um, like to diversify the narrative, right? The narratives that we're, um, not only exposing ourselves to, but also, um, like producing from, from your perspective as like someone who actually produces work and helps other people produce their work. And then there's also the responsibility in, in each story in itself, right? Like every time I am writing something, I, like I've made the decision for myself, like nothing that I ever write is going to include someone smoking a cigarette. It's just not. And that for me is like, I am not going to glorify that. Um, and then it gets tricky if I'm like writing a period piece as I am right now, like people used to smoke cigarettes constantly. So like, am I just not going to put those in there? I don't know. Do we need to talk about it? Do we need to show someone like hacking, coughing or like getting lung? You know, like how do we then address that? So there's the responsibility in terms of like, I see my responsibility as a writer to it is as like creating the world that I want to see rather than like, glorifying things that I don't want to see, violence, um, you know, things like that, objectification and so on. Um, and then there's, there's also the, the responsibility to make sure that I'm exposing myself to narratives of like made by people that don't look like me. Right. Um, and then maybe it's a third responsibility as a producer to make sure that you are, um, making space for those voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does that, uh, how does that play into, to your work and, and how do you see like your specific responsibility in terms of the work that happens that way? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I, I, I have to walk with awareness, you know, and, and, um, the 
kind of what I was saying before is my dream graduating college was to basically um, be able to be a part of a company like Unicorns is now. And we yeah. are a young company, so we have a lot of work to do um, because we we struggle with just keeping our doors open. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, it's we're young, we're motivated and... Um, you know, this, this idea of representation is uh, so core to what we're doing that it presents another layer of challenge because we are, um, we're really trying to put a lot of effort into, we are putting a lot of effort into finding uh, people, people that are underrepresented, the voices that are not being heard as much and doing what we can to, you know, make sure that there's a, there's a seat at the table. Um, and it's complex and it's, you know, because advertising, I mean, even right now, it's like, we're getting all of these, like, who do you have that's a black director? And it's like, <laughs> right. Right. You know, like it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, I had a conversation with a, a woman who is a black director and we had a long conversation and I was like, Hey man, I, I, I really don't know how to, um, do this right. What I know is that this is the wave of advertising and I want you to be getting work. So my inclination is yes, let's do this. And also let's talk about what it means. Uh, I mean, in this specific conversation, it was like, Hey, we should, you know, there should be a, a reparations line in every budget that, right. um, you know, if you're making money now off of this trend of, uh, yeah. you know, black directors are the, are the new thing, then, um, yeah, you need to pay for It's like, you know, specifically with advertising, it's such a, you know, like money generating It's like, it's, there's so much money. Um, I'm not sure if I'm articulating it well, because it's, no, part I mean, of, like, it's like this feeling I have as opposed, you know, I haven't really tried to articulate it. Today's episode is brought to you by me. I teach boundary and consent classes on Zoom on a sliding scale. These offer a framework for us to practice the language of consent and find and communicate our own boundaries. I also do one-on-one -on -one sessions privately. I'll let Ophomia share her experience with you. Doing boundaries and consent work with Mia has been one of the most transformational experiences of my life. I remember when I began this work with her earlier this year, I was terrified. I didn't really know what to expect and was scared that I was going to make a fool of myself. And I'm so glad that I went because it's nothing like that. One of the most powerful things Mia ever said to me was that doing this work gives you the ability to understand yourself and to then give the gift to others to not cross your boundary. And it's been so rewarding and so amazing and I've literally recommended her to everyone I know. She's a remarkable person and the work is so individualized that I truly believe that everyone can get something out of it. Thank you, Afomia, for that incredible recommendation. You can find the forums to register for class or book a private session through the link in my bio on Instagram at Mia Schachter. And on with the show. Yeah, no, I mean you're you're getting really specific with a really broad question. And like yeah. and and I I'm I I appreciate that because I think that you know, we, we can all kind of have these theoretical ideas of like how, how to promote change, how to participate in change. And yet, like when we're then faced with these icky questions of like, um, hey, you know, black directors are hot right now. Yeah. Like that makes me want to vomit. Mm -hmm. But as you said, like 
yeah, let's, let's then let's pay them. And then like, let's pay them more, you know, there has to be, um, and, and even for like less experienced directors, like hire them, pay them more, you know, we need to like, this isn't even about equality anymore. It's not about striking a balance anymore. We actually have to deliberately shift power because trying to go from, you know, 400 years of, of inequality to like horizontalism is not going to work. We need to actually shift the power. And that requires white people to be willing to give up something, power, money, jobs, whatever that is, and not hoard it. Um, What I'm seeing is like, is so many of my white friends and, and colleagues and like work relationships, you know, people who are like, yeah, I'm, you know, they, they don't want to be called racist. They like resist, but they're resisting the self-interrogation. And then when it really comes down to it, they're not willing to actually give anything up. They're not willing to risk anything. And I think that is where I see um, the most work that needs to be done. And, and also like the, the, the kind of flags of like, Hey, this is where you need to like do the digging, right? Like this is, this is where you need to look at, um, the system and then consider how you participate in that system and then how, how much power you actually have to help dismantle that system. Yes. But it does require that you actually give something up. Yeah. or take a risk, yeah. or put yourself in harm's way in order to reduce overall harm, right? Like if you need to put your body between a black person at a protest and a cop, and that is really scary for you because you don't want to get hurt, like nobody does, you know? Like you need to, we need to train ourselves to be better prepared to um, like h- combat that fear head on. Yeah. And quickly so that in the moment we can do the processing to think like, this is how I'm going to reduce overall harm. I might get hurt right now, but no, but I'm not going to die. And if if I, right. Yeah. I mean, to your point, you know, like I, I don't remember where I read it, but, um, you know, to me, the biggest actions are in the smallest interaction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as in, in, uh, when we talk about, furthering change and keeping our foot on the gas pedal and the momentum that's happening right now. It's, it's, for me, it really translates into um, sticky and difficult situations in my daily interaction that are scary to call out. Right. I don't want to be sensitive and I don't want to make anybody mad and, you know, or whatever it is. Um, Those are the things that, you know, I've, I mean, this is something I've committed to, you know, I have committed to this um, and I mess up, you know, I mean, not, not, not related to, um, you know, racism specifically, but I watched a woman throw trash out of her car window and I sat there, I could have easily gotten out of my car, walked over there and said, I think you dropped this or, you know, whatever it is, even you know, I picked it up afterwards, but I didn't address the behavior. And I was shocked. I was shocked that I was witnessing it and paralyzed because I didn't want to disrupt the, the, you know, the, the piece. And I didn't want to, 
um, make her mad or seem super sensitive. And so I made a commitment to myself afterwards that if I ever see that again, these are the steps that I will take. So, and it's the same thing. Like when we face new situations, when I'm, you know, right now I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm reflecting a lot, reflecting a lot on the messaging coming out of unicorns and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we're, we're a pretty diverse company, but you know, we don't have any, I mean, we have a small staff, but we don't have any black people on staff and, you know, we have people of color and, but, you know, specifically me as a white woman, like I need to think about how I can be in partnership and an ally with change instead of imposing what I think is right. Right. And also being, you know, really careful not to do it like for the sake of optics, right? Right. Like you want to make sure that, that people feel welcome and supported. And then that has to be like built into the foundation of the organization. It can't just be something that we tack on. Um, I, I have also like had to kind of look at moments where I haven't acted and, um, and kind of ask myself like, who was I trying to protect? You know, um, it's a delicate dance because I think that there's also moments where, uh, where we also have to kind of do strike this balance of like, um, is this, is this person going to understand, right? Like I teach, I teach these classes on zoom and there was, um, something that came like at the beginning of, of certain classes that I have now where, where it's more of a discussion and less of like, I demonstrate some, some frameworks to people like in the follow-up classes. Um, at the beginning now, I, I kind of go through like guidelines for this class. And one of them is I want to refrain from making generalizations about groups of people. So that's gender, race, sexuality, so on. And, um, and then there was this class where, uh, where we were talking about, um, you know, having, having boundaries that people don't need to like that you don't want to explain or that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to explain your boundaries. Right. So, um, and then there was this woman in the class who said um, something about how like Asian tourists come to Australia and touch her hair because she's blonde. Um, and and she said, it's because they're Asian, you know, they're Asians. And before she said that comment, I had decided that I couldn't really get anywhere with this person, that there was like too large of a of a disconnect and i didn't want to waste these other students time you know and i already knew that before she brought up this example of asians right (laughs) and so when i heard that and my skin was crawling i was like oh god like am i do i you know do i as the teacher need to address this. And, and ultimately looking back, yes. And I wish that I had, I wish that I had. And I think that like being able to do this, um, this, uh, you know, to have this internal conversation, um, like takes practice and it takes practice to get quicker at it. I want to get quicker at it so that I can do it in that moment 
like without having to have this like, but, and, and like back and forth kind of thing. And like, who am I protecting? And like, you know, I would, I would love to be, because, because in the moment I thought I'm, I'm actually protecting these other students time and like, oh my God, like, I don't think I'm going to get anywhere with this. It's going to totally derail class and, and, and so on. But I, I, I do looking back, feel like I absolutely should have addressed it. Um, but then I, even as I'm saying that, I'm like, did anyone in that class want to like sit through me explaining to this, you know, this, this woman, like why what she was saying was not okay. And ultimately like, yeah, it would have been a lot more impactful for me to model that kind of intervention and for me to practice for myself, that kind of intervention. Um, but I, I want to get faster at it. And I think that's kind of, I'm, I'm losing track of like why I brought this up, but, but I, I think it ties into what you were saying about the responsibility. Like that, that was my responsibility. And I now want to make sure that I'm getting better at that, um, practice really so that I'm a better teacher and, um, and, and, you know, can like, can do that in a, in an instant. Yeah. I mean, as at unicorns, you know, it's like, we, uh, we hit the ground running. We didn't really think about what was happening. We knew what we cared about. We knew we needed to make money so that we could keep our doors open. And at some point it was like, wait a minute, we haven't, like, we need to, we need to model some behavior, right? Because there are, you know, there's some like jokes and riffing that happen with, you know, my two um, partners who are both Asian and one of them's Dutch and, you know, and gay. And so we joke around with each other about things, but recognizing the modeling behavior Mm. that, you know, like there's a, um, you know, we have a responsibility to be leaders in our space. And so that's something that is really like, we're really thinking a lot more about that now, especially mm-hmm. now, it, you know, and, and how do we, how do we shift culture in a, in a place that, I mean, this, this, this could be a whole other conversation too, but, you know, going back to sort of the gendered conversations that we were having, like, how do, what, how do we envision a workspace that isn't, you know, based in a model that uh, sort of the patriarch created, you know, and and what does it mean to be a female-owned company and how do we create an inclusive space that, um, you know, addresses all of the things, you know, we had (laughs) a a Buddha in our bathroom and uh, because that's just some sort of, it's a decor that one of our partners really likes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was like a, a nice statue that we put in there and, and, and we hired somebody that was Buddhist and she turned the Buddha statue around. I, I didn't know about this until afterwards I was, you know, traveling or something. And then, um, and then we had a conversation and she's like, it's really disrespectful to have Buddha in the bathroom. And we were like, mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Really sorry. Good to know. That's a good learning. Yeah. bathroom you know and so we and then we just made this like we got to strip all like this is a religious symbol really right you know and so it's just like you're saying it's like ongoing learning and 
responsibility to incorporate and be aware and ask the questions. Right. And I think a little tangent. Yeah. No, it's, I don't think it's a tangent at all. So my, my next question would is, um, what is the kind of labor that you find yourself doing the most? Um, and, and if that's, uh, like I can give some examples. Yeah. Is it emotional, manual, physical, domestic, um, financial? What is the, what is the work that, and maybe these are two separate things that comes most easily to you. And then also that you find yourself doing the most of. I mean, I think, you know, work, labor, like it's, I spend so much time in my head, um, you know, thinking through things, reading, learning, unpacking. Like I, um, you know, around social justice, it's so important to me and I'm constantly hitting up against this um, sort of hurdle that, um, I don't think is unique to me. It sort of uh, ties into the like imposter syndrome and who wants to hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. I'm just some, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And, um, and then also, you know, feeling like, you know, I'm not good enough for fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And uh, why do I think that, you know, like I, I tend to look at, like, I, I remember this story that my, my old roommate in college told me about her partner and he, you know, philosophy major, wealthy, white man. Um, I don't know how much of that is tied into it, but, you know, I'm going to make some assumptions about mm-hmm. it. He just saw this job uh, that sounded interesting to him. Zero experience in it. Zero. It was like, something to do with computers. Like he had to actually learn something. He's a super smart guy, but he just decided that he was gonna get the job and that he was gonna apply for it and interview and presented himself in a way that was like, you know, from the, I mean, he felt entitled to have it. And I just, I sometimes think like, gosh, I could use a little bit of whatever that is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Um, and of course, as a white woman, I have more of that than, you know, some other people for sure. Uh, but the, but I hit up against that a lot. Like, I feel like I have so much more to do so much work. My labor to your answer, your questions, Mm -hmm. it's really about sort of unpacking my own, uh, my own shit so that I can move on. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that unpacking, um, is kind of part and parcel with, with, with guilt. And I think that a lot of people right now, a lot of white people right now are <clears throat> so, um, so suddenly overcome with guilt that it's preventing them from acting and it's sure. preventing them from looking more deeply. Um, because if they were to uh, like truly look at the ways that they've participated and been complicit, they would feel terrible, you know? Um, I have a cat uh, moving around <laughs> under here. Um, but I, you know, the, the guilt is something that I've worked to really put behind me because I find it to be a totally mm-hmm. self-involved emotion. Um, and it, you know, all it, all it does is 
like take a shitty thing and and make it worse, right? Like it's it's really an excuse to kind of like wallow and not do mm-hmm. anything. And I feel like that that guilt for me was was instilled in me in a very at a very early age um, with things as simple as like when my family would go out to dinner, my dad would always make sure to tell us how much the meal cost. And it wasn't designed to make us feel guilty. I know that his intention was to just let us know, like, this is how much living costs, you know? Like, if you want to do this when you move out of the house, this is how much it costs. But the way that it was internalized for me, for for whatever reason, was in immense guilt about my privilege. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I noticed maybe five or six years ago, I started to notice that that guilt that I was experiencing was paralyzing other people around me and preventing really intelligent, incredibly talented people with a lot to offer um, and preventing them from, from participating in the world, you know, like essentially making art in a closet in their apartment and like never sharing it with anybody. There was this kind of, um, self-deprecating thing that was happening that was like, well, nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Right. And I was looking at these like cis white men around me thinking like you have all the power. Anyone will hire you, listen to anything you have to say. You could literally stand on a street corner and you're wasting it. And, and then what, what came along with that was that I had less power and less of a voice and a platform than they did. And I've, I realized years ago that most of the rest of the world feels that way about me. Mm-hmm. Like they look at me and think you have all this power and you are shrinking away in your bedroom, afraid to speak because, because you're paralyzed by your guilt around your privilege. And so a lot of that work for me over the last however many years has been, um, making sure that I see it as my responsibility to mm-hmm. share that space and share that power and, and, and actively make space for other people who don't have as much power as I do. Of course, that requires me to um, have power that I can then share. And so like, that's where I kind of get stuck with it because I, I want more of a platform so that sharing it creates a larger impact. Um, but you know, this isn't. I don't mean to make it all about me and all the work that I'm doing. Um, but I, I do think that it's like worthwhile to kind of share that experience with people because, and I, I'm hearing something kind of similar in what you're talking about. Because I think that a lot of people right now are kind of lost in this guilt, and there is a way to turn that guilt into gratitude and into a responsibility, and not just like sit in it and not know what to do with yourself. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. I mean that, and it, you know, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but for, 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 there's a, I've been realizing after starting, uh, unicorns that, because, you know, that was, that was a big deal. Like this, I had a cushy job. I have special needs kids. I, you know, like, I don't have a huge savings. Um, you know, there, and I just left it all to do this thing with the hopes that we could keep a company alive long enough that we could actually make some social change in a very small, intimate way. But like all of those things like matter, like to me, it's about, I don't know if you know that starfish analogy, the, um, 
you know, a bunch of starfish wash up on the shore and a little boy is walking or whatever, a little kid is walking along the shore and throwing, picking up one starfish and throwing it back out in the sea and an old, you know, crotchety fisher fisherman <laughs> on the side is like, you're never going to save all those starfish. And boy picks up one and sends it out to the sea and says, well, I saved that one. Mm. And so, you know, to me, it's just like, that's the deal. Like one at a time, like who, who do I resonate with? Okay. There's, and, and I, I feel that I've moved now into more of a place where I can offer mentorship. And as part of that, I have to own, um, own my position as, um, and my power, kind of like what you're saying, you know, it's, and so f for the, the, the labor that I do in my head is to, so that I can put, you know, walk through it. Like I can walk through the barriers and be brave and, you know, scare, you know, do the one thing a day that, you know, you're afraid of so that other people can see you doing that thing. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't, I, I mean, like you say, some of the, you know, that, that sort of comes with sitting in your power and then recognizing that you have it and um, being responsible about it. Um, sharing it, using it. And I mean, I think realizing that you have it is the first thing. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, um, it's like an AA. <laughs> you have to like acknowledge that you're an addict before you can begin your healing. And I think that's kind of collectively what we're doing right now yeah. is like a lot of people are recognizing that they're addicted to power, money, fame, Yeah, you know, whatever work, whatever that is. And they're not willing to give it up um, for the greater good. I mean, it, thinking yeah. about it as in terms of, and like bef in order to do the work, you have to first admit that you are complicit and participating in it. Yeah. And the assumption is, you know, like I, I heard, I mean, then there's a spectrum of um of support and awareness like i was listening to npr the other day about you know and it was sort of this call-in opportunity for people to express their experience about what it was like to be in a protest or what the, you know what's going on and this guy called in and he was just like this is horrible you know i've been protesting and you know i think that um you know basically the sentiment is racism is terrible you know police brutality is unacceptable but the police are coming for some reason. Oh. And so it was just really like, <laughs> okay, you know, and, and the, you know, the moderator did a really good job of sort of explaining why that position, you know, the holes in that position. Yeah. But it was just like, okay, so everybody, like you can still be in support of, um, I don't, I don't know if, you know, like you can still, still recognize the police brutality and all of the wrongs that are happening mm -hmm. and still have this idea that, well, someone, yeah, someone's yeah, doing something wrong though. A little bit. You must have, you right. know, they came you for must deserve it a little bit. Right. Yeah. yeah uh, I mean, that just lacks all awareness of like the criminalization of being black in this country for 400 it's, years. It's really hard to find that information. Like it's really I, let me back up. It's not hard to find the information if you're looking. Like it's not right. hard to have awareness. It's not, but in your daily life, if you're not uh, looking, yeah. if you're not looking, you're, you know, I mean, you are fed. You're fed 
information with a, in a subconscious level through advertising that right. informs how through headlines alone, you know, like that informs how you see the world and what you think about a situation without having all the, the backstory of it, without understanding, like, I was watching that show Black as Fuck and, mm-hmm. you know, there was just like, you know, how they, it's just so good, you know, it's like, they parse out these moments of, mm-hmm. okay, well, and let's talk about that. Like, let's pull right, the entire history of why that is. Yeah, like, yeah. let's talk about fatherhood and why mm-hmm. this one statement that sort of said flippantly actually has a lot of relevance. You right. Know? Or like, like the gold chain necklace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I, God, I love that show for so many reasons. So many. <laughs> and, and mainly just because I was cackling laughing by myself. Yeah. Like, um, but I, I, yeah, I, to the point of like, it's, it's, I don't think that it's not, um, it's not that, people aren't I want to go back to like I know that you of course didn't mean that like like it's hard to find that information um but I think that there is a there's like there's people who are actively looking for that information right and and it's so easy to find it's everywhere um and then there's people who are kind of like um passively open to that information but not actively questioning the information that's being fed to them. And then there's a whole other group of people, which it sounds like this guy is one of them, you know, these like these white progressives who are like, yeah, of course this is bad, but they look at it in a vacuum. They look at it in this, in this one moment and they don't look at like the historical context and they don't look at the ways that like our government in its foundation criminalized being black yes. and and continues to criminalize simply existing yes. for black people. Um, so then when we and and actually I I've, this quote has kind of been circula- circulating in my um, in my like Instagram world that uh, part of from from Tourmaline if we also need to rid ourselves like abolish the police in our head, right? right. And so like someone like that has police in his head that are saying like, if the police come for you, you've done something wrong. And there might even be, you know, if we were to like dig psychologically into this guy's mind, there might be like a lot of blame that he experiences that he is putting on himself unfairly. And so when he looks at other people being, you know, handcuffed or are attacked by the police, his brain goes like, well, I'm, I would, I must have been doing something wrong if that were to happen to me, right? And it's like lacking that one step further of empathy that's like, I can't, I am not experiencing what that person is experiencing. I don't have an, a, a, a fear of death when I see a police officer because statistically, you don't die at the hands of police officers. Right. Did you have the Hate You Give? <laughs> watch that. Yeah. I watched that film on an airplane. So did I. And I was like, like bawling. And I know, next to a stranger. I know, it was like, ah! But yeah. the, such an in, it, insightful, important moment that stuck with me was when she was talking to her um, uncle, who was a police officer, who said, yes, I would, you know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but 
you know, the broad strokes takeaway was, yeah, if I'm pulling over a white man in a suit, I'm going to have, you know, less of, uh, I'm going to be less inclined to feel like there's danger happening. I probably won't pull a gun or, you know, like the the reinforce, but even, but, you know, and then, and then hearing in the news, you know, just because you have, um, you know, a, a police force that is diverse. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that any of these behaviors are uh, reduced, you know, in behaviors, I mean, like police brutality and assumptions about people based on the color of their skin. You know, it's, and it's also like, you know, I, I, I tend, I think about this a lot, like as a w- woman, you know, I found myself thinking when I was hiring, you know, looking to hire somebody who had children, I thought, oh, well, hmm, I think I probably need somebody who's going to be way more available. And I was like, whoa, yeah, whoa, you know, and like, okay, so that's interesting. Like, yeah. you know, these like institution, like institutionalized, these inherent bias that we always carry around mm-hmm. and needing to recognize. I mean, it was you know, like we are all of the things, like we have pieces of all of those things in us. And our job now, I think, is to just be on like heightened awareness of when they pop up and looking at them and being like, oh, shit, look at you. Okay, so we're going to move that away. We're going to recognize it and then put it away. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap up. Um, so in in closing, um, can you share three uh, formative experiences or pieces of media or whatever it has been for you that have gotten you to the way that you think today? I was just looking at this, Alexander Yuhas wrote this book, um, Women, Film, and actually I don't remember, Feminism, um, which was really insightful uh, to me. Like I, I would say probably Black as Fuck was really insightful experience watching that like I learned a lot and also it gave me a lot of it 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 stimulated a lot of thought for me Mm -hmm. um so where can people find you online well the company unicorns unicorns is at unicornsandunicorns.com and we are constantly striving to do better and contribute and then you know unicorns make magic is the instagram handle I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ziarto at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, and producing help. And to Tyler Fjeld for the music. You can reach me at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com with questions or comments. All right, Adrian. Well, thank you for doing this with me. Yeah, thank you. Lovely to meet you. That was good. Good questions. Good thoughts. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.